Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So I'm going to read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 in just a second. Then I'm going to work back through it and ask and answer four questions very quickly. But before I do that, I want to give you uh, two things. I want to give you full disclosure what my aims, what my goals are this morning as we gather. The first thing that I want to do is if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have turned from your sin and self-righteousness and you have trusted in Him and you are born again and you believe in Christ, I simply want to stir your affections for Jesus once again. I want us to think more deeply about what Jesus has done for us. And I want us collectively, if we are Christians in here this morning, to, in a more deep way, appreciate and adore his work for us. If you are not a Christian in here, my second goal is to be very, very clear with you about what it means to be a Christian and what the Bible says about what being a Christian is all about. Many times in church culture in America today, a very watered down and anemic presentation of the good news of the gospel is given. And it is, because it is so watered down, literally morphs into deception. And so we want to be clear about the wonderful good news of what Jesus has done for us. Well, let me read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, and I'll pray. And then, uh, then we'll get down to it. Paul writes this to a young pastor named Titus, picking up in chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these words. Lord, we come to you now with, with humble hearts, confessing our rebellion, our distraction, and the, many, the many idols that we manufacture in our heart. Lord, our default position is to view the scriptures and view you through the lens of what you can do for us to improve our lives. And Lord, we confess that default position and we pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit that 
is working in this room even now. We pray that you might lift our eyes from ourselves so that we might see Jesus more clearly. For the Christian in this room, I pray that you would rouse us from our sleepy slumber and that you would cause the roots of sovereign grace and the goodness of the gospel to take deeper hold in our lives so that we might bear more fruit of love and worship so that we in our lives might become a sweeter aroma of Christ. And Lord, if there are non-Christians, people that do not yet believe in Jesus, whether they realize it or not, or whether they are honestly seeking, and certainly with a crowd this size, there are people that fit that description here. I pray because you are gracious, not because we are wise, but because you are gracious, I pray that your gospel that brings life would cause the dead hard hearts to come alive and turn from self-trust and turn from sin and turn from rebellion and turn in faith and trust in what you have done through Jesus on the cross for that person. I pray, God, that those things would be so and that as we leave this room today, we would all say, surely the Lord has been good to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have four questions very briefly to ask you and answer for you. These four questions, I think, are, are clearly within this passage, this text that we read in Titus chapter 3. The first question is, what is our natural state apart from Christ? In other words, what is the natural state of every person that has ever been born except for Jesus? What is our natural? How do we start off? What's our default position? What's our natural state before we trust in Jesus. The second question is, why does God save us? Why, why does God even choose to be kind to us and save some people that trust in Him? Why does God do that? The third question is, how does God save? How exactly does He make a rebellious glory thief into His adopted child of grace that then worships him with the rest of their life. How does God save? And then fourthly, very quickly, why is this so important? Why is seeing this truth? It's clear in these scriptures. Why is it so important? All right, question number one. What is our natural state apart from Christ? Let's read verse three again. Paul writes this. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let's consider our arrogance as we come to the Bible. I admit that when I read verses like that, my natural default position is to think of somebody else. Isn't, isn't that yours by the chuckles and the uh, heads going north and south? I get a little affirmation. Don't you think of somebody else? But do you realize that verses like that are written not just to the irritable neighbor or the felon or the convict or the terrorist, but they're written to all humanity. Do you realize that the Bible does not discriminate in its indictment against humanity? Do you realize... Chapters in the Bible like Romans chapter 3 where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none is righteous, that all of us utter evil. Ephesians 2 that says that we are dead in our trespasses, that we are by nature 
children of wrath. And then this verse here in Titus chapter 3 where it says that we were all foolish, disobedient, led astray. And then I think particularly has been the case in my life, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And here's the deal, is that that can disguise itself to our sensibilities as fallen natural people as success. A slave to even the good things in life, the American dream or, or even morality or, or earning a good living or, or working out and having a healthy body or, or having a, a good retirement. All of these things, when they're unconnected to the one who created us, become sort of rabbit trails of glory thievery because they make, at the end of the day, they make us the sum and end of all things, so we can pursue even a good thing in a sinful way. And what happens is when we do this, we don't inherently think of these things as bad, and so we think, I'm not a very bad person. I'm a pretty good guy. I've, I've got a job. I'm paying taxes. I'm, I'm showing up there occasionally. Every now and again, I got my shirt tucked in. I'm not committing any crimes, and I mean, I'm an SEC football fan, and I go hunting, and, you know, I, I track the deer down. I turn it in. I don't shoot does before this. I don't, I don't do bad stuff. You know, weight limit on fish. I'm not a bad guy. And I think that that sort of default mentality is the default position of the most of the people that grow up in the Bible Belt, like most of us. And so we have to wade through our sort of deception and our trust in our own relative goodness to see that verses that sting like this don't apply to the convicted felon alone. They apply to people like you and me. That we are all slaves to making much of ourselves and all of the passions that go with that, even as they disguise themselves as moral pursuits. And so do you realize that the Bible is very clear? Listen tune in on this, do you realize that the Bible is clear that the consequences for that sort of glory thievery, that sort of self-absorption is separation from God. And whether it is a very public crime or sin or whether it is an internal idolatry, the Bible is clear that it is rebellion and rejection and treason of the most high order that deserves not just a sort of cosmic slap on the wrist, but the very judgment of the Most High God who is holy and righteous and good. Have you seriously considered where you either were before you became a Christian or if you know that you're not a Christian right now, where you are right now? In fact, I, I think you can sort of be ignorant to this truth and still become a Christian because I, I, I don't think I understood my own depravity and sinfulness before I came to Jesus. In fact, just the other day, I was sitting on my porch watching that we have a neighbor who has a pasture with two cows and there was a, they, one of them came pregnant and had a little baby cow and I was looking at just the beauty of that little baby cow, but they're Oreo cows, which is some strange Scottish breed, so they're black, white, black, like Oreo cookies. And I was looking at the, the parents who were, 
or I think it's like a mom and an aunt. I think they're all females. But I was looking at the mama cow, and she was, um, she was dirty. And the little baby cow, the little white part of that little baby cow was dirty as well, even though it was supposed to be white. And for some reason, it just clicked in my mind just thinking about the many years in my life where I, I wasn't just a kid who didn't quite get it yet. But I was sprinting headlong into sin and debauchery and self-deception and idolatry and glory thievery. And the wrath of God was barreling down on my head. And in God's kindness, He opened up my heart when I was a young man. But it just hit me like a wave. Do I even realize what God saved me from? Have you taken a moment just to consider? To consider the seriousness of your treason and your rebellion against God? And has that humbled you? And has that caused you to lift up your eyes in desperation to a good and gracious God? I think that's why Paul is writing these things to remind us of that. Now let's keep going. Verse 4. He says, but when the goodness... So the first answer... Let's stop before we keep going on. Let's answer that question clearly. What is our natural state apart from God? We are separated from God in our sin and in our rebellion, in our idolatry. Whether we are public criminals or moralistic Americans, we are separated from God in sin. And we are just recipients of His eternal wrath and punishment. But the good news is that the story of the gospel does not end there. Let's keep reading in verse 4. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this brings up our second question. Why? Why does God save? Why does He save? Well, he doesn't save. It's clear, is there? It's just, it is clear. He does not save there in verse 5. He does not save because of works done by us in righteousness. Paul alluded to it earlier in, in a transition from one song to another. Reynolds alluded to it in the verses that he read very clearly that God does not bestow his saving grace. He does not transfer a person from spiritual life to spiritual death from running headlong into hell, into eternal security in heaven forever, because this person has somehow figured it out and has cleaned up their act and has, has put enough pebbles in the pile of good works or has given enough or has shown up enough or has cleaned up their act enough or has done some good work enough. He says, clearly not because of that, but because of his own mercy. Just simply because it is God's nature to be merciful to rebels like us. Just simply because that's who God is. Just, just dwelling on that thought for a moment. Does that not provoke humility and, 
adoration in you that God saves because that's the way God is. And doesn't that produce in us some sort of freedom, actually? Because, see, on the surface, that's a little alarming, is it not? It's a little alarming that it's sort of out of our hands because now I, I can't control this thing. I, I, can't, I can't do enough to do it. And, and because we're default self-worshippers, that stings a little bit, doesn't it? Because, because then I'm not in control of this thing. But once you press into that biblical truth, it becomes such sweet and beautiful news because let's go back to our default position of sort of us somehow attaining salvation by trusting enough or by mustering enough faith or by cleaning up our act or by coming to church enough. Think about if we went with that sort of system of salvation. Where along that spectrum would good enough be actually good enough? Where would that be? Where is that arbitrary line that would be enough human goodness to merit the saving grace of God? Think about the despair of that bell curve. Think about that. But the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't grade on a human curve. He grades simply because of his mercy that he pours out on his people. Do you see that? Do you see how indescribably comfortable, comforting this truth is? So that means, that means a couple things, friends. It means that no one in this room is beyond his mercy. He saves all manner of people. Do you see if the thing that has been holding you back from Jesus is thinking, Oh, he couldn't save a person like me. Do you realize you're still caught up in your self-worship when you esteem your badness as stronger than God's mercy? Do you see that? Do you see how freeing this is? That means that God saves because he saves, because he's rich in mercy. Do you see that? And do you see that when you press into that truth, that becomes the most freeing truth in the universe. It means that he saves self absorbed sinners like me who have shown no interest in him. It means that he saves wounded people whose horrible experiences of being sinned against have blinded them to the truth and the goodness of God the Father because God in his mercy saves people like that. It means that he saves self-righteous religious people like me who are in many ways the worst of sinners because they're trusting in themselves as savers rather than the grace of God. It means that he saves weak and weary people who have gotten themselves into such tangled messes of sin that there's no way that they can work themselves out of that ditch. Do you see what great news it is not to trust in your own strength or wisdom or works, but to give yourself wholly to a creator who is rich in mercy. Do you see how good that is? He saves because he saves. That's what God does. And now let's go to the third question which is all important to understand this. The first question is, what's our natural state? Separated from God, in our sin, righteous recipients of his condemnation and wrath forever. But 
because of his own mercy, he determines to save his people? And how does God do that? Let's go back to verse 5 and 6. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So in this one little sentence here, we see the beautiful work of the Trinity. We see God, who is rich in mercy, who determines in eternity past, the Bible says, to save. And how does he do this? How does he take care of sin? How does he stay righteous and bring filthy sinners to himself? How does he do that? How does he not just sort of pollute his holiness, so to speak, by bypassing human rebellion? Well, the Bible is clear. He does this by sending his son Jesus, God himself in the flesh, to live among us. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus took on flesh like we have and was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And then he became like his brothers in every way, feeling every temptation that we feel, yet enduring it victoriously to the end. And what he was doing there was he was becoming acquainted. He was becoming like his brothers and sisters. And he was also building up righteousness. He was becoming the perfect sacrifice, the acceptable sacrifice for human sin because he himself was human, but he was also fully God. And then he willingly lays down his life on the cross. And the Bible says this about what happened there on the cross in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. One of the most important verses in the Bible. If you've never memorized a verse, this would be a good first one to memorize. It says that God the Father made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who lived in perfection, to actually be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, Jesus actually becomes our sin. And as the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 53, literally the iniquity, the sin of all who would trust in Jesus was laid on Christ. And he then, as Romans chapter 3 says, becomes the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. It's this word called propitiation in the... Bible in Romans chapter 3, if you're using a newer translation of the Bible, it may not have that in there, but Romans chapter 3, there's this word, propitiation, and it means that Jesus literally becomes the punishment bearer. He, he, actually, he actually satisfies God's wrath on the cross, but he does more. He then turns that wrath into God's favor and mercy and righteousness for all that believe and trust in him. And so then this is the good news. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done. And he doesn't stay in the grave. He rises again, validating his divinity and his godness. And then ascends into heaven where he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in him. And so God saves by the death, the perfect righteous death substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sin, 
And then he rises again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences. And that is the good news. It's the gospel. But what we've got here is we've got a piece of information, right? We've got this gospel. We've got this fact that Jesus did this. But then how does that fact actually get to you to save you? Well, that's what Paul says. He says that he saved us, not because of works, but because of God's mercy. Then midway through there in verse 5, it says, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, it, this means that the Holy Spirit then comes and it regenerates you. It hits your dead heart. The Holy Spirit is like this, like this carrier of this news. And it works through the means of the preached gospel, whether it's proclaimed from a pulpit on Sunday morning or in some other venue, or whether it is shared with a conversation with a friend, or maybe it's read in the Bible or read through a track. But this news, the news of what Jesus has done for sinners, the wrath bearing, life-giving substitute of God on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. This saving news then becomes communicated through the means of a human vessel or written word and it hits the human heart and the Holy Spirit is like the divine PVC pipe that pumps the water of life from heaven straight into the faucet of your heart and it brings life it makes, when it hits those whom God is saving, it brings that dead heart to life. That's what the word regeneration is. It causes that which is dead to come alive. That's the gospel, friends. That's it. it even gets better than the good news of the fact that God is just merciful. He's not only merciful, He's also mighty to save. He gives the very thing that He commands. He brings life in the gospel and the life of the news of what Christ has done hits a dead rebellious heart and it makes it alive. Don't miss it. Makes it alive. Don't misunderstand, friends. We're not saying you've got to take this news, absorb it, figure it out, consider it, and then make a decision in your own sort of sinfulness as to whether or not it's good or not. No. This is how it gets even better. It actually saves it actually saves. It brings you alive. It makes you His. And it causes you to come alive with faith and trust and disgust of your former way of life. That's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe the gospel saves and God does this by bringing the news, the life-giving news to your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, he says that you must be born again of the Spirit and that the Spirit gives life that's how God saves. And why is seeing this so important? Our last question. Seeing this so important, seeing this is so important, because this is the only way that God saves. He saves by no other means, 
other than the cross of Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That means those who have not trusted in Jesus, it means that the wrath of God, no matter how seemingly good they are, the wrath of God remains on them. In fact, Jesus says that in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, in other words, by believing in Him, doesn't mean that you have to live a perfect life, but believing in Him, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, do you realize that there's only one way to heaven? And do you realize that your resistance to that merciful, clear truth and even now your doubts and your questions about how could God send people who are relatively good to hell because they haven't trusted in Jesus is in itself, in fact, evidence of your very wrong ideas about human goodness. None of us are good apart from Jesus. All of us at the very core of our goodness before we come to Jesus are glory thieves and selfish glory hounds. And God in his kindness doesn't give us a hundred options or a sliding scale. He offers Christ. That, by the way, is also why it's so important for a church not to be selfish and stare at its belly button all day and want worship music that they like and programs for their kids and all this stuff that Christians just build their lives on so they can be selfish hogs because there's a world out there that needs Jesus. They don't need Christians being snots hanging out in a building and being rude to waiters afterwards. They need Christians who feel the gravity of this that no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. They need Christians who care more about the gospel than their special song. They need Christians who care more about the mission of the gospel than their comfort. They need Christians who care more about communicating the only news that saves than their silly little church culture. They need Christians who are compelled with the love of Christ to take this message everywhere and to give their lives up for the sake of the communication of that message. So that's one reason why it's so important. And then secondly, Paul gives us a hint. He says, listen, for all of you Christians out there who have been, who've bought the lie that the gospel is the way you enter into heaven, and now let's start all this other stuff like, how do I have a good marriage? How do I fight anger? All these silly little isolated teachings that are unconnected to the cross that you've just bought into this sort of self-help mentality. This is the verse for you. I love it. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God in other words, Christians who have trusted in that, or if you're becoming a Christian, even right now by turning and trusting in him, when you do that, it causes you to be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Do you see what that's doing there? It's saying that when you get a hold of this biblical message of the gospel, it stirs your heart. And you realize that everything in your life, your money, your sexuality, your temper or control thereof, everything, your parenthood, your wife, your 
husband, your job, everything is just a response to what Christ has done for you. And now because of what Jesus has done for you, you are careful to give yourself to a life lived on mission because God in his mercy deems you to be one of the carriers of his message to people who need Jesus. Do you see how understanding the gospel, living in the gospel, knowing it well, then propels you, Christian, into a life of growth and ever-increasing Christ-likeness. That's why it's so important. And so we come today to celebrate that truth. Before I do that, let me just read you a couple quotes that will hopefully crystallize this truth in your heart. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know these will be a sort of uh, greatest hits of Brad's quotes. Uh, William Arno, the British theologian in the 1800s, said this, just to crystallize in our mind what's going on here today. He said that the difference, so don't, see, don't misunderstand us here, friends. We're not saying that Christians are perfect or that the people that are getting baptized here in a moment are being saved by their baptism. They're being saved simply because of their trust in Jesus. And we're also not saying that, that we as Christians have got it all figured out. And William Arnaud says that the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God. That's the unconverted man. While the other takes part with a reconciled God against his dreaded sins. This is what John Bunyan, the great Puritan writer who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, says about this good news of the gospel. He says that the law commands us to run and work, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings, friends. The gospel supplies the very things that it commands. And how can we have a sermon on the gospel and a baptism service without a quote from my man, Charles Chucky Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor back in the 1800s in London. Maybe my favorite, that's right, Chucky. Maybe my favorite Spurgeon quote in a little book called All of Grace. It's a little book, compilation of some of Spurgeon's sermons. It's actually available in our resource room for a couple dollars. He writes this in a sermon on Romans chapter four and verse five where he says that it is God who justifies the ungodly. Listen to this. Hear this, friend. If you have become aware in the past few minutes that you have not yet trusted in Jesus the way the Bible says that you need to to be saved, listen to Spurgeon's words. Listen to him plead for your heart. Listen to him offer Christ. Listen to the clarity and the beauty and the power of these words. He says, come in your disorder. I mean... Come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly, hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? <laughs> Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text and I 
cannot put it more strongly. The Lord himself takes to himself this gracious title. Him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Do not delay until you have considered this matter well. Friend, if your heart was beating and the Holy Spirit is bringing life to your heart right now, I'm going to pray. Here's what you do. You become a Christian not by being water baptized, not by raising your hand or repeating a prayer, although those things may be helpful at times. You become a Christian by believing in Jesus, by turning from sin and trusting in Him. And you can do that right now. Right now, I believe, the Holy Spirit is bringing somebody from death to life. Jesus says, believe, believe, turn, repent, and believe, and the kingdom of God is yours. Even as I'm praying right now, come, come in your disorder and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now that for the Christians in this room, you would stir our affections for Jesus. Lord, that we would be, that we would be humbled and compelled afresh to see how unbelievably gracious you have been to us. And that, Lord, this would produce Christ-likeness in us that then would translate into better use of our money, better use of our bodies, better relationships, better marriages, better parenthood, better vocation, all of those things as they are lived out as a response to what you have done for us. And Lord, if there be a person in this room, and I'm sure there is, that came into this room dead and lost in rebellious glory thievery, if the enemy is lying to them right now, telling them that they don't have what it takes to believe, or that God can't save a person like them, I pray that you would by your gracious goodness cause those darts to fall to the ground and cause the truth of the gospel to ring clear in their ears that you take delight in justifying the ungodly and that even by the power of your Holy Spirit and the words of the gospel the fact of what Jesus has done you are making them alive right now. And now they need to just exercise their first breath of their new life. In turning from sin and trusting and faith in you. God, would you do that right now? Would you be so gracious as to give saving faith right now to a person, causing them to believe? Friend, if that's right now, you look and see Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus. Even now. If that's you and you want to talk to somebody about that after everything's done today, after these baptisms, after a few songs, after that, come and seek out a Christian, somebody that you know to be a Christian. Friend, they would be glad to speak with you about the decision that you are making right now. And Lord, now as we celebrate these dear brothers and sisters that will be baptized, God, drill down in our hearts the goodness of your mercy and grace through Jesus Christ on the cross. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.